Kale Clark here. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Check out Charity Mobile and prayerfully consider making them your wireless carrier. Mention offer code Relevant Radio and get a free phone. Don't delay. CharityMobile.com. That's CharityMobile.com. Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. So it's the final episode of this little series, and I want you to open your Bibles with me to chapter 4 of Jonah. And as we do that, we're just going to say a quick prayer together in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, let's let's look at Jonah chapter 4. Actually, before we do that, just because it's such a short book, let's back up a little bit to to chapter 3 as well. It's just a couple of paragraphs, just to set the tone in case you missed the last one. So let's look at chapter 3 real quick. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he cried, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then tidings reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he made proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may yet repent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we perish not. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay, so that was chapter 3. We looked at that in the last episode, so you might want to check the podcast on relevantradio.com or through the app or wherever you get your podcasts of the Faith Explained program to get all caught up on that in great detail. So now let's go to chapter 4, the final chapter. And starting with verse 1 here, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I pray you, Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and that you repent of evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take my life from me, I beg you, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he could see what would become of the city. And the Lord appointed, a, and the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. 
So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm which attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a sultry east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? All right, so that is the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. So Josh Taylor, writing about this passage, he said that really you could look at what happened to Jonah as almost a Copernican revolution. Obviously in the 16th century, Copernicus, that Polish astronomer, he, he really changed the way that we think about our place in the universe. For years, for centuries, people believed that the Earth was at the center of the universe. The sun and all the other planets kind of revolved around it. And in the second century, there was an Egyptian astronomer named Ptolemy. He, he had kind of came up with this view and, and people just believed that for so long. But when, Copernic, when Copernicus came onto the scene, everything changed. He said, no, no, actually this guy's got it all wrong. Everybody's been wrong. The sun is the center of the universe. The earth revolves around it. And since that time, we found out so much more about space, about the planets. We've been to space and with the Hubble telescope and everything. We continue to, Elon Musk wants to send us to Mars. There's so many things that we're discovering about the universe and, and how incredible God's creation really is. But that Copernican revolution absolutely flipped our point of view upside down. And, and this is exactly what's happened to Jonah. Jonah has had kind of a Copernican revolution, or at least God wants him to have one. And that he's been a really, really selfish guy uh, ever since the beginning. He thinks it's all about him and his plans. He, he thinks really he's the center of the universe. But really, he needs to shift his thinking. The reality is, despite what he thinks, the fact of the matter is that God is the one who's at the center of the universe. God is the one whose opinion really matters, not Jonah's, not yours, not mine at the end of the day. And so Jonah has really been so selfish. He did not want to preach to the Ninevites because they were Assyrians. They were the hated enemies of his people, the Israelites. And these guys are brutal. And I went into great detail. I'm not going to repeat it here in the first episode of the absolutely heinous things that these people did, especially when they were battling other nations. And so Jonah wants God to drop the hammer on them. He, he, he wants God to come in judgment on them, not give them a chance to repent. And so he, he was like, no, if I was God, I wouldn't do it this way. And so I'm going to flee. I'm going to try to run away from God. And that's why he hops the boat to Tarshish. And it doesn't work out, obviously. He still gets, God still gets his way, as he always does. Jonah's thrown into the water. Uh, he almost drowns. He almost dies. The fish swallows him up, spits him out on dry land. And Jonah has to continue on with the mission that God has for him. So God's trying to 
get him to go from being selfish to selfless. And we have to make that revolution in our own lives as well. We need to put God first, others second, and ourselves last. And we still have to love ourselves. Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. You still have to love yourself. And that's part of the equation. So again, that spells joy. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. I know it's a, a cheesy uh, kind of line, but, but it really is true. We've got to get away from ourselves. You know, the most popular photograph taken today, of course, is a selfie. That tells you all you need to know. And if smartphones were around in Jonah's, in, uh, Jonah's day, I'm sure he would have taken advantage of that. He would have been on Instagram for sure. But anyways, so God is reminding Joseph, or Jonah rather, I keep wanting to say Joseph, that it's, it's not about him. It's about God. And that's what our life is really all about. It's about God. And so we need to get wired into God's perspective on ourselves and on others. So what we see here in chapter 4, and Jonah's kind of steaming, you know, he's, he's maybe still hoping in the back of his mind that God is going to smite them after all, the Ninevites. And, and he's mad. He's mad. And God asks him a question. Is it right for you to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? And God loves to ask questions of his people all throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. Let's just think of some of the questions that God asks in the Old Testament outside of the book of Jonah. Back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fall into the original sin, what does God say? He says, where are you? <laughs> no, it's not that he doesn't know. He just wants to give them a chance to fess up, to really have the first confession in human history. And they, of course, don't take him up on it. Who told you that you were naked? They didn't realize they were naked until, until they covered themselves with fig leaves after the original sin, the original fruit of the loom underwear. What is this that you have done? Again, God is trying to elicit confession, but they won't. They're too proud. Cain and Abel. We know what Cain did. He killed his brother. Where is your brother Abel, God says? What have you done? And then, of course, uh, in Job, in the book of Job, uh, Job gets into uh, all kinds of suffering, and his friends say, well, you must have sinned, you must have displeased God in some way. So Job, you know, is really kind of torn up about this. And the question of human suffering is really taken up in the book. But God has some questions for Job and his friends. God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You know, there's only one know-it-all here, and it's me. And so that's really a sign that's really hung, hung over the doorpost of heaven. Only one know-it-all lives here. He really does know, know it all, and he knows what's best as well. Here's another one from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And then in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this great vision of God's throne room, uh, the cherubim, the seraphim. And then God says, whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? It's kind of a prefigurement, of, if you will, uh, of the doctrine of the Trinity, which becomes more explicit later. God always was a Trinity from all eternity. Who will go for us, God says. And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Well, Jonah didn't say that. Jonah did not say, here am I, send me, I'll, I'll do it. I'll go on your mercy, uh, your mission of mercy here. No, no, no. And in the New Testament, this continues on as well, these questions that God asks of us. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And that, that's such an ultimate question. Our response to Jesus, who do we think he really is? Is he merely a human? Is he just a prophet? No, no, no. He is the God-man. 
What do you want me to do for you? Matthew chapter 20. What do you want me to do? What, what do you want God to do for you? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? That's another question he asked Judas. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Acts chapter 9, of course, Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. So God is really, really good at asking questions. And one of the reasons why he does that, and we should do this as well, when we we're talking to people, trying to share our faith with people, is that it really does reveal where we're at in our heart. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our answers are really, really important. And Jonah is really angry, and God says, does it serve you well to be angry? Is, is this really good for you? And by the way, the, the, the word in Hebrew means he's really steamed. We'll get into this in just a minute. And, one, and why is he angry? Because he knows God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. And he even says that, I knew that you were a God of mercy and forgiveness. And he didn't want the Ninevites to receive mercy. He didn't want them to have a chance to repent. And so... When God asks him this question, is it good for you to be angry? Jonah doesn't actually answer him. So as Josh Taylor says, Jonah has no response here. He, he doesn't respond to God. He, he basically stonewalls God. Classic passive-aggressive behavior. If you've ever known anybody who's passive-aggressive, you know what I'm talking about. So here's the irony. Here's the irony. We, we, we might imagine that, you know, if, if Jonah was in a house right now, he would have left to slam the door behind him. The, the right answer would have been for him to say this. No, Lord, it's not right for me to be angry. It's certainly not right for me to stay angry. Yeah, I know that at times we can get angry at God and it's, it's never really justified, but God can handle our emotions. Now, if we stay that way in unjustified anger against God, that's a huge problem. And it's not right for, for Jonah or anybody else to stay angry at God, even if he doesn't understand his ways or agree with them. Because God's ways are always goodness and love, even if we don't understand it. So what does Jonah do? He goes east of the city, and he kind of sets up a booth or a little you know, miniature tent for himself to live in. And, and really, he probably would have made this out of branches, uh, kind of a little hut, uh, just a just a place to hang out for a while. And he's sitting there, and you know what? He's got a good vantage point on the city of Nineveh, and he's maybe kind of hoping still that God's going to drop a firebomb from heaven and just, just <laughs> destroy it. But he knows God, God is going to forgive them. And so he's just sitting there, he's steaming, and he's just kind of angry with God. Now, at the same time, in Nineveh, the king is is sitting as well but in a, in a different posture he is sitting in sackcloth and ashes he is repenting and so while Jonah's sitting there god does something but not exactly what he wanted him to do and so god still provides for for jonah this is this is what he does he, he appoints a bush that that grows and, and kind of covers him and people have really argued about what kind of plant this was, this really unpredictable plant that grew up. Some people think that it's a castor oil plant, which is the kind of tree that can grow in a desert environment with large shade, uh, lots of big leaves. And, and Jonah loves this. He is absolutely excited about this plant. Uh, he can't believe it. Because he's, he's sitting there in the, in the hot desert and he's trying to make this little hut. Well, God provides him this shade little plant for him that, wow, now I can kind of chill out here. This is great. I've literally got it made in the shade. 
And Jonah doesn't quite catch the irony here. He can't believe that God lets these sinful, disobedient Ninevites live, but he doesn't understand. He, he himself, Jonah himself, was also disobedient. God spared his life. Those guys repented when God gave them a chance, the Ninevites. The question is, will Jonah repent of his attitudes, of his misalignment with God's mercy? That's the question here. And you're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. So he's got it made in the shade. He's really excited. And, and, and I just can't believe this because there's no excitement by Jonah when he's called by God to, 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 to be his instrument. No, he, he tries to run away. When he finally preaches to the Ninevites, he finally gets there. When they respond to his preaching, he's unhappy about it. When God turns from destroying the city, no, no reaction. He, he's just he's just really steamed. But wow, when God gives him a plant to cover him up, he, he can't get enough of it. Again, so selfish. He only cares about himself. And so he, he's happy for the moment, but God's not done with his lesson plan yet. It, it, Jonah's joy only lasts for a really short time because then God appoints a worm. And this worm starts to attack the bush. It's this kind of a pest that, that destroys the plant. The plant dies. And then, just as that happens, the sun comes up, and there's a hot easterly wind, and Jonah is just in agony. And this is probably the, the Sirocco wind. It's a very hot wind, uh, lots of dust and, and all kinds of dirt in the air when it blows. And people, it just, it's really, it makes people really tired, exhausted, depressed even. The Sirocco, this hot eastern wind, and he's just in agony. And he wants to die again. Jonah's like, just kill me now. And then God has another question for Jonah. He says, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And this time, Jonah actually has something to say back to God. He stops being passive aggressive, aggressive for a moment. He says, yeah, yeah, I am mad. I, I'm, I'm so mad that I, I want to die right now. And as one writer says, the ancient Hebrew word for being angry is literally to be hot. God's really letting Jonah feel some of the heat here with this hot easterly wind. And here's what God says. Look, you're concerned about this bush. You didn't plant it. You didn't cultivate it. You didn't make it grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. Here today, gone tomorrow. So you're concerned about that. Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also many animals? So God's kind of really used this, this, this plant as an object lesson to confront Jonah with his selfishness. He, he really gets the divine perspective on this. Okay, you're, you're worried about this plant. You're so excited when it blooms. You're so angry when it dies because you can't get what you want from it. Well, why aren't you happy about the new life that's growing in the souls of the Ninevites? Yeah, I know that you're, they're your sworn enemies, but they've got a seed of faith now in their souls. And I planted that through you, Jonah, the tender shoots of faith. And it's growing. They're repenting. And you're not excited about it. You're actually angry about it. You, you should be rejoicing. You're upset about the demise of a plant. Why wasn't your soul burning with desire to preach to the Ninevites and make sure that they didn't suffer the eternal death of hell 
when you went to preach to them. So, so God really gives Jonah a huge wake-up call. But the, here's the thing. When we, when we get to the end of the book, we don't actually know whether Jonah changes his ways, whether he changes his perspective, whether he changes his attitude. It doesn't tell us. There's no, you know, Jonah went home and realized that God was right. It doesn't say anything like that. All we have is to, that's the end of the book. God just says, hey, you're concerned about the plant. Should I not be concerned about all these souls that are there, these eternal souls that are created in my image? What do you think about that? And so it, it kind of leaves us with a question mark. And that's what allows us, as Josh Taylor says, that's what allows us to put ourselves into the story that ultimately this book is addressed to us. So we have to see ourselves through Jonah's eyes. And, and imagine if God was speaking to us, if we were the ones sitting in that little hut and out in the desert and sitting under this plant, what would God say to us? Does God think that we are selfish people? Does God think that we're ready to proclaim his mercy uh, even to our enemies? Are we ready for that? Are we, or do we want God to drop the hammer? I don't know. It, it's just a great exercise to put yourself in the narrative. And we should really do that when we read the Bible. It's a great way to read the scripture when we're reading the life of Jesus and the Gospels. Put yourself in as one character in the scene. Uh, Saint Ignatius of Loyola recommended this practice. Saint Jose Maria Escriva, the founder of Opus Dei, encouraged it as well to put yourself in the scene. Maybe you're sitting at the table when Jesus is uh, there at, at Matthew's party with all the sinners, you know, and saying, hey, you're sick. You, you need a doctor and, and I'm, I'm the guy. So come to me and be healed. So we should really put ourselves in the story of Jonah as well. How, we, how do we look at God? Do, do, we, do we see God as being unjust for being so merciful? Uh, do we see God as he really is? This is something that, Joseph, uh, that Jonah really needed to know. And so God, and by the way, this, this, whole, this whole book of Jonah is a great corrective to this idea that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. There was a famous heretic uh, in the early church, Marcion, who thought that uh, the Old Testament God was something he called a demiurge. You know, this is an evil God, you know, compared to the New Testament God, the God of Jesus Christ, who's obviously great, you know, and merciful and loving and kind. The Old Testament God, not so much. But we see here that God is the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what it says in, in Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same can be true, is true of God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. God is always the same. God was always merciful even in the Old Testament time, although he gradually revealed himself in his ways to the world, culminating in the person of Jesus Christ, his final and definitive self-revelation. So God wants to change our view of who he is, just as he wanted to change Jonas. Maybe you think God doesn't want to show you mercy. Maybe you feel like the Ninevites and, and you're surprised that God wants to offer you his forgiveness. He causes rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. It's hard for us to understand why that is, because why, why doesn't he just smite the wicked right now? He wants to give them a chance to repent. That's why there is going to come a day when he will judge the world through Jesus Christ. And so what we need to do is look at Jesus. Look at Jesus on the cross. That's how we know what he's all about. Looking at a crucifix is one of the, it's the greatest theological lesson we could ever get. We see a God who is not 
a God of injustice. Sin must be punished, but he takes it himself. He's a God of mercy. We see the God who is love on the cross hanging there. And so this is why Jesus laments over Jerusalem. And he weeps because he knows they're going to reject him. He wants to forgive them. He wants to have compassion for them. And so, as Tim Keller says, Jesus is the prophet that Jonah should have been. Of course, Jesus is much more than a prophet. He is God incarnate. But this is exactly what Jonah should have done. The same attitude should have been within Jonah. But Jesus didn't just cry for us. He died for us. He didn't just cry over the city. He died for it. He dies for all people. God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's what it says in the Gospel of John, John 3.16, that famous Bible verse you see on bedsheet banners at football games. And so when we, we really believe this, or we really want to wave that banner in our own lives, we will change, and it will change how we view others. Now, one last quote from Tim Keller. There are many people who have no idea what they should be living for, or the meaning of their lives, nor do they have any guide to tell them right from wrong. God looks down at people in that kind of spiritual fog, that spiritual stupidity, and he doesn't say, you idiots. When we look at people who have brought trouble into their lives by their own foolishness, we say things like, serves them right, or we mock them on social media. What kind of person says something like that? When we see people, uh, for example, from another political party defeated, we just gloat. It's a way of detaching ourselves from them. We distance ourselves from them out of pride and because we don't want their unhappiness to be ours. But God doesn't do that. Real compassion, the voluntary attachment of our heart to others means that the sadness of their condition makes us sad. It affects us. That is deeply uncomfortable, but it is the character of compassion. End of quote. That's all the time we have for today, but if you have a question about the Catholic faith, I'll try to answer it on the air. You can send it to me via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com, or you can try to get your question to me on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark. I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central for the Kale Clark Show live on Relevant Radio, and I'll see you in the next episode of The Faith Explained. God bless.